This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Joining me, as always, is the president of the of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well, man. We uh, I'm all warmed up. We had a great conversation <laughs> even before we fired up the mic, so... This will be good. Oh, man. Y'all, man, we got to release one of these kind of off-the-record conversations <laughs> one of these days. One of these. Five days, years like, down the road. Five, was, ten years down the road. We can release Five it. years. I was going to say 30, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one, of the, that's one of the perks of a RAND subscription. So if you get the RAND subscription, <laughs> you can listen to these. Nah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, though, for real, speaking, speaking of five years, do you know uh-huh. what October 31st is? October 31st. Besides uh, the beginning of Ran, the beginning of Ran, right? Yes, it's the Ran oh, anniversary. I, I thought right. you were gonna say Ooh. Halloween or it's no, also, no man, come on now. It's also, we woke over here. There you go. It's also Reformation Day. Um, yeah, of course, man. Now we which, can't forget that. Which is symbolic, right? That's that's shout out to Vinberg. Shout out to Vinberg. What's good? <laughs> Silly. So that's why we hey. chose October thirty first. So. Um, uh, yeah, it's the five-year anniversary of RAND coming up at the end of October 2016. Um, it's incredible, man. We did. Uh, we started with a Facebook page in 2011, and that mm-hmm. page is still going. And right now, let me just check and see. Uh, we have got over 7,000. No, 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 right. no, no. Let me tell. Let me. I think it's more than that. that. Yeah, we've gotten over eleven thousand likes. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's got to be over over ten thousand. Man, yeah, we're about to be verified. We're about to get that little blue check pretty soon. So, so we've got over eleven thousand likes on Facebook, and we in twenty twelve is when we launched the website, and so we're over a million views total cumulative over the past several years uh, for that mm. little website, which. When I'm telling y'all this is a small operation, I mean it's like <laughs> it's a small operation. We got like 18 servers, yeah. we got a back room, <laughs> we got 18 employees working each server. That's uh fantasy. But <laughs> you know, you take that, you slim that down to about two people who run the website, and that's <laughs> it. And 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 most of our posts come from just volunteers uh who who have a have a idea and pitch it to us and we put it up there. So uh, shout out to all of our writers. Thank you so much for contributing posts over the years. And then, of course, we launched the podcast in January of 2014. And so we've mm. been going, man, what, two years strong, over two years strong now. And uh, really, it was just January of 2014. Yeah, oh. bro. This is this is it feels like we've been recording for years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've covered we a have lot a year's of worth of recordings, but no you know. doubt. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and a lot has happened in that time. But I'm just amazed. I mean, it's been half a decade since this thing started. At um, the the semi long version is it started in Chattanooga uh, when hmm. Y Plummer, who's the African American ministry director for uh, Mission in North America, which is part of the Presbyterian Church in America, he invited me and just a handful of other black seminary students at Reformed Seminaries to go to New City Fellowship out there and see mm. that you could have a multi-ethnic, uh, Reformed Presbyterian church. And it was a great experience. And it was coming back from that weekend that I said, man, I wish there was some way that we could have this kind of fellowship more often. And so right. um, out of that came this Facebook group and then the website and then the podcast and, and everything else we've done. So I just thought I'd mark that. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out something special to do on the web uh, to celebrate it. But thank you all so much for listening to the podcast, for accessing the resources on randnetwork.org and just for all your support. It's been a crazy wild ride, but a fun one and a blessed one. 
Yeah, we should. I'm just spitballing here, throwing this out. We should do some live, a live something. Ooh. On, on that, on that night, some Monday, we should do a live something at some point. Just involve everybody, you know, get some people watching. I don't know what we're gonna do. You'll see. But <laughs> Jamar, Jamar probably doesn't remember the first conversation we ever had was actually right after they had just started the Rand Network Facebook page. It was at the Unashamed Conference in Atlanta. Man, I remember that. Reach Records put put on an Unashamed Conference, and I brought a couple of the dudes who I was digging into discipling. Um, we just made a little trek up to ATL. And I ran into Jamar at the Reformed Theological Seminary booth. And so we were just sitting there and he walked up to me. He said, what's up? You know, he's real smooth. He's like, James Bond. But now we know you're lying. We started talking, man. We talked. I, I remember I missed my next session because we talked so long. Ah, I remember that, bro. And yeah, I miss it. I missed all of that session. I just walked in. I was like, I don't even care. Because it was the first time I had found someone who was articulating the faith in that way with the reform lens, but unapologetically himself, and then had the pleasure of connecting with with you and Phil again yeah. in uh, the Gospel Coalition Conference in 2013. So, man, just shout out to to you both for for founding this, getting this off the ground, man, and your contributions. We are still feeling the impact and looking at the 11,000 people who have liked the page. And then all the people in the Pass the Mic Facebook group and all the people who have given feedback, it's crazy. So Well we'll get we'll get Bo in on this and, and Elodie and they'll help us think through something, but we'll we'll have something special going on for the five year anniversary. But just wanted to 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 bookmark that for folks and you know, say a prayer of thanksgiving because God has really blessed this thing in spite of us all along. Talking, uh, I also wanted to bring up one other thing. I am part-time the director of the African-American Leadership Initiative at Reformed Theological Seminary and special assistant to Chancellor Lincoln Duncan. And so uh, I still sort of have my attention focused on seminary and training the next generation of church leaders. And uh, RTS recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. It's been around for 50 years educating uh, pastors and church leaders, and they announced this this really incredible opportunity. It is called the Hughes Scholarship, H-U-G-H-E-S, the Hughes Scholarship, and this is a massive, robust scholarship. It pays it's it's a full ride. It pays for the complete Master of Divinity program, as well as books. <laughs> it's got a book stipend books on books on books for up to a thousand dollars per year. So so through the Hughes Scholarship, it's a value. Each scholarship is in value uh, excess of fifty five thousand dollars, which includes a hundred percent tuition, the book stipend, and uh, just just the ability to go through seminary without that financial burden and without getting into debt. They're offering 30 of these, 30 of these for the 2017-2018 uh, school year. Mm. So if you have ever thought about attending seminary <laughs> and getting now the master's degree, now is the time, right? Now is the time. Your first step would be to go to um, rts.edu and look up the, the Hughes Scholarship. You would have to first get accepted to the seminary. So you just do the general application. And then once you get accepted, you, this will be part of your financial aid process. You can apply for the scholarship. Um, and so it's based on Christian character, a pastoral recommendation, a clear calling to pulpit ministry. So they're really looking for uh, uh, pastors and elders in here. Um, it's going to be looking at academic achievement, ministry experience, and future promise for gospel ministry. So uh, mm. if you can demonstrate that clear call and a desire and uh, integrity and, and, and biblical qualifications, you are eligible for the scholarship. And I wanted to say that on past the mic because look, we need some uh, black and brown folks getting in on this. So ethnic minorities in particular, I have a burden that you would think about this and possibly apply. That's awesome, man. Full ride. You can't beat that. Can't beat that. The price is right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, if they want more information, they can go to rts.edu or is there someone they can follow on Twitter for that as well? 
Yeah, rts.edu is the best one, but you can also uh, check out at ReformTheoSem on Twitter. Or if you can find me on social media, message me and I can send you some links. Awesome, man. Well, it looks like we have a special guest as well today. Someone that you are excited about interviewing. I'm excited about interviewing. Give the people just a little bit of background on our interview guest today. Okay, so Michael Ware, we ran into each other, goodness, I think just online. Look, the double-edged sword of social media, it is, it's is—it's got its disadvantages, but some advantages. I ran across him just we're in similar circles, and what stuck out, stuck out to me is he's a man of faith, he's a Christian, but he was also involved in politics and in, involved in politics on the blue side. Um, the Democratic side, which I'm sure we'll get into. So um, he is one of the co-founders of Public Faith, which is another topic we'll talk about. And so I'm just really eager to hear his insight and experience, especially in this crazy election cycle that we're in. Yes. For those of you who don't know, Michael Ware is the founder of Public Square Strategies, LLC, which is a sought-after firm that helps religious organizations, political organizations, businesses, and others effectively navigate the rapidly changing American religious and political landscape. Uh, he also directed faith outreach for President Obama's historic 2012 re-election campaign. As Jamar mentioned, he is a co-founder of Public Faith, which is a group of Christians who share a commitment to Orthodox Christian faith, and a belief in working toward the common good through politics toward a just and flourishing society. He co-founded that with our good friend, Dr. Alan Noble, who's also a friend of the show. And Michael is also the author of the of forthcoming book, Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. We have a distinguished guest. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, gentlemen. Good to be Good to be with you. Okay, so Reclaiming Hope sounds like a a timely book title for this election cycle when a lot of Christians, a lot of people who are observing are losing hope in our political process. How much have you, in light of your experience and light of your credentials, have you lost hope? What's giving you the ability to maintain hope in light of this craziness that we're seeing in our election? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, hope is uh, almost a little uh, 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 too too relevant uh, <laughs> right. in, in these times, uh, uh, but but that's uh, part of the reason why I'm why I'm excited about the book. I, I mean, l- listen, my my hope is secure because my hope is in Jesus and not in politics. Um, and and when uh, when our uh, our interest in and when our engagement in politics. Uh, is fueled by politics itself, then that's going to lead us down uh, some 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 difficult some difficult paths without the resources that we need. It right. is um, it is yeah, it is not not safe to engage in politics with our feet planted in politics. Mm-hmm. The safest, uh, most effective way to engage in politics is with our feet planted in the gospel, um, and so. Amen. Um, th- that is um, reclaiming hope is is a bit of uh, my journey in that, but uh, more importantly, it's it's about the future of this country and, and how we're gonna how we're gonna move forward. Um, and so I take some of the lessons I learned working um, working at the at the White House, working on both of uh, President Obama's uh, uh, national campaigns um, to try and. Uh, Take some some lessons and some resources from that to help us uh, in the in the years ahead. Awesome. Well, let me ask you this because this is a personal question. Now, are you familiar with the television show The West Wing? Are you familiar with that show? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. you probably get asked this all the time. So I just got, but I have to ask you this: How reminiscent <laughs> is is it? Is there any comparison to what happens in The West Wing? And what happens in the actual White House? Is there any comparison? Is it anything like that? Or is that just a fantasy we need to go ahead and kill? Yeah, I mean, so it's closer. It's closer to reality than like scandal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that's not saying much, but uh, okay, that's good for us to know. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, uh, it, you know, so uh, listen, uh, people at the White House aren't that funny. Uh, y- y- they don't walk and talk so much. Uh, uh, th- they aren't. They aren't. Uh, you know, so quick with the with the quips, 
Um, but what the West Wing does capture is, um, you know, I think some of the some of the gravity of of working there. I mean, I, I was I was there for the president almost uh, the entire uh, first term, um, and it, it was as uh, sort of astounding to me to. to to be at the White House the day I left as it was, you know, the day I came in. I mean, it's just uh, an incredible sort of uh, incredible sort of place to to, to work. And so, um, you know, the West Bank captured some of some of that. But, uh, uh, you know, th- things didn't always uh, end up as neatly as, uh, as as Sorkin as Sorkin would write it at the end of you know at, at the end of an hour. <laughs> right, I figured. I figured. <laughs> Leave it to Tyler to bring in the pop culture reference. That's that's good. That's hey good. man, I had to. I'm I'm very curious. I was just curious about that, and um, and, and thinking about these these real world implications. You worked in a Democratic White House. So what is it like to be a Christian whose feet are firmly planted in the gospel, but at the same time be working in a Democratic White House? That would probably maybe be foreign to the people who are listening. Can you explain just how you came to to espouse those principles, how you came to be in, in on that side of the aisle um, and the Christian influences that do exist on that side of the aisle? Yeah, well, you know, I think... You know what it, what it felt like is like you know what it feels like to be you know like a Christian in the world you know right. like uh and so uh you know th- there were there were disconnects and uh, moments when uh, uh when you know I I had to like go a different way or when I had a different perspective just like um a, a, a lot of my friends that work in Republican politics. I mean, what's what? Uh, there are some some differences. The Democratic Party has uh, has more rapidly than the Republican Party secularized. So you have uh, today the Democratic Party is a, a, a third religiously unaffiliated mm-hmm. or or non Christian, um, uh, which is which is a brand new thing. But um, but uh, you know, I I think. I get nervous when Christians tell me that they're in politics and they're sort of completely comfortable with where with where they are. Mm. That sort of tells me that 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 you know maybe their politics isn't coming from uh, 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 from from the gospel as right. much as it should be because we're just going to be uh, we're going to be salt and light uh, you know wherever we are um, and so. So yeah, so that so that was that was important. I, I mean, I'll tell you. So I'm a, uh, I was a Democrat uh, uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, I I grew up in the Rust Belt. My uh, grandfather, who was like a father to me, was the greatest generation. Came home, served in his local labor union, benefited from the GI Bill, uh, benefited from uh, you know sort of post FDR policies. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so that was key. And then, and then second, um, I, my, my sort of the, the policy entry point to politics for me was, was civil rights. And, wow. uh, you know, there, there was one party that was, uh, you know, defending the civil rights act. Um, one party that was, um, uh, uh thinking about how to protect, um, in a sustained way, voting rights uh, uh, moving forward. One party that was um, that that uh, was was representing and working with um, uh, with, with a, a lot of the key uh, groups that support the advancement of civil rights. And so, um, so that was that was important to me. Um, you, you know, as as I as I started as I started out. Um, and so we 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 could talk. We could talk more about that, but that sort of um, that tradition of sort of blue collar working class Democrats in the Rust Belt, right. and then the Democratic Party's historic commitment to civil rights was um, was was important to me. It's encouraging. Well, it seems like of all the issues, politics divides. We'll say white evangelicalism uh, along partisan lines almost almost 
more than any other issue. And, and race is obviously wrapped up in that because, like you said, you know, one side kind of supported um, civil rights legislation, the other side not so much. I find this massive stigma to mention anything about Democrats because that brings up for a certain segment of Christians this idea of, of liberalism, rampant secularism. When you maneuver within evangelical Christian circles, how do you navigate that? How do you talk about being a Democrat? And I'm sure, you know, the abortion question comes up and, and just, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you approach those kinds of situations? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing is I'm not, I'm not quiet anywhere about my, my position on an issue like that. So I, I wrote uh, in USA Today with, with Dr. Russell Moore about uh, the Democratic Party's really reprehensible uh, move this year to call for a repeal of the Hyde Amendment, which is 40 years of bipartisan policy saying that uh, regardless of its legality, we don't, um, uh, we don't treat abortion as a moral good and, and subsidize it with taxpayer dollars. And uh, unfortunately, that's that's what the Democratic Party has decided to support as as a as a matter of party dogma um, uh, th- this this year. And so I've been uh, outspoken about the ways uh, that I disagree um, that I disagree with the uh, with the Democratic uh, Party. But listen, like it, it's um, if you're if you're talking about international aid or immigration reform or a care for how uh, your policies impact uh, the poor, uh, the, the, the Democratic Party has spoken to those, mm-hmm. um, th- those issues and those ideas. Um, and so one, one thing that I've been sort of talking about as I've been traveling around the country is, um, you know, we, we have the highest number of political independents in this country that we've ever had. 43% of Americans identify as political independence. And sort of sort of what that means is like almost half the country, a plurality of Americans have unplugged, have unilaterally withdrawn from one of the primary levers for uh, influence that, that we have available to us as citizens, which is investing uh, and being a part of a political party. And if, if folks want to know why our political parties have become so extreme, it's because everyone who doesn't agree with uh, uh, with with every a, a lot of people who don't agree with every dot and tittle of the party platform have, have left the conversation. Right. And so the parties are basically talking to themselves. So what what we need are faithful Christians who are. Uh, who are identified as Republicans, who are registered Republicans, who are who are proud to, to call themselves Republicans, who are willing to challenge their party on an issue like immigration reform. What we need are faithful Christians who are Democrats, who are registered Democrats, who are who identify as Democrats, who are willing to challenge that party uh, from the inside on its position uh, on an issue uh, like life. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I think that's what, that's what I've tried to, that's what I've tried to do. And I, I think, um, uh, I, I think I, I think it'll be important to see more of that moving forward or else we're going to continue to see these parties, uh, acting and pursuing policies that only reflect a small, small portion of, uh, sort of the ideological, ideologically concentrated, uh, on both on both sides. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. You you actually spoke to this issue in a 2014 article that I remember I bookmarked. Uh, it's called "The Changing Face of Christian Politics" that you wrote for the Atlantic. And I want to just read just an excerpt of the end of that particular article where you said, and I quote, we need leaders and people to support them. And them was meaning a a diverse minority of groups of people from ethnic minorities to sexual minorities. You said we need people uh, to support them who recognize that the question for this century is not how do I win, but how can we live together? For Christians and for all Americans, answering this question should be the central, central political project for 2014 and beyond. 
what where do we go wrong? <laughs> what happened? Because that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Now, there are some encouraging examples of people who are doing that, but it doesn't seem like people that took your advice with the idea of how can we live together? <laughs> what, what happened yeah. to get us off the rails? And particularly, does the word evangelical now mean anything in the political sphere? How did evangelicals miss that opportunity to, to promote a unified populace? Yeah, well, uh, uh, I mean, a, a, a lot is a lot is happening. We could talk about the influence of money in politics. We could talk about a stratified uh, media where you have media outlets that are um, organized around a commitment to an ideology and, and not a commitment to objectivity and, and, and how that how that fuels polarization. Um, but, but what I've really tapped into. Uh, again, sort of in my in my travels over the last six months, a year during this election, and, and and this is something that's hit me pretty hard, which is our politics is doing great spiritual harm to to people, and it's 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 doing spiritual harm uh, because people have started to go to politics to have their spiritual needs met. Um, and so you see people, um, so polarization is at an all time high and it's not just in Washington, uh, this, uh, study, uh, 2014 study from Stanford showed that polarization is actually seeping outside of Washington and into our very own communities. And so, uh, and get this in the, in the 1960s, they asked parents, uh, who would you not want your child to marry? And the answer was someone of a different religion or someone of a different race. And they asked the same question uh, in 2014, and the answer wasn't a person of a different race, wasn't a person of a different religion. Uh, The answer was, if they were a Democrat, uh, I would not want my child to marry a Republican. Uh, if I was a Republican, wow. I would not want my child to marry a Democrat. That was the, that was Ooh. the number one. That was the number one. Wow. And so you you yes. think about what that uh, what that means when even our most uh, intimate personal uh, social relationships are uh, influenced by politics and partisan identity in that way. And 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 to me as someone who 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 cares about the gospel, who cares about spiritual formation, there, there is a, there's a emptiness that, that people are trying to fill. Um, uh, and, and our politics is filling that in some very unhealthy, uh, some unhealthy ways. So, yeah, I think you're, I think you're spot on. Cause, uh, it, it used to be, it's, think of the Protestant Reformation. It used to be that people would argue over, religion That's right. like we're now arguing over politics now of course it's a little bit different because religion and politics were so intertwined you had established state religion in a lot of cases and so they kind of coincided in a, in a slightly different way but there was this still this there were these faith commitments that people were talking about um the really transcendental things uh that that mattered in terms of the religious faith and now uh, we still have this vigorous public discourse but i think you're right it's it's transitioned into much more of a earthly temporal political frame that for christians it's real easy for us to kind of lose our bearings and and um forget the true north of the gospel in the midst of that yeah. but but sort of in that whole conversation in that whole mix comes this new organization called public yeah. faith um, now, folks can go to the website. They can check out the the statements and everything. Um, but what if you could if you could articulate what would make public faith successful? What would be success yeah. to this organization? Well, you know, uh, my hope and I think our hope for public faith is that it provides a a vehicle for Christian engagement in politics um, that. Uh, to to those who were ready to withdraw, for those who mm. felt um, like like there wasn't a way to um, to engage in politics in community in a way that was that was faithful and kept 
kept first things first and and wasn't frantic and wasn't full of anxiety um, and, and public faith um, you know in, imperfectly is is gonna is gonna um, uh, I think is is doing that and that is our that is our pursuit which is not to say that sort of how 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 uh, how our organization operates is the only Christian way of pursuing politics. That's been one of the problems with uh, with with religion and politics in the past is is this sort of presumption that there's only one way, and that's just not the case. But uh, when you look at our vision statement, um, people who felt sort of politically homeless have have found uh, have found a place where they're where they're comfortable, a, a place that. That provides a voice that they didn't feel was was being provided, and so um, th- that's to me that that's uh, that's success. Because look, it's like an interesting eight. Like everyone has a Twitter, everyone has a blog, but but what I sort of came to was, um, you know, these individual things don't, frankly, don't amount to much. If if, if yep. we're just if we're just uh, sort of measuring our impact by how many clicks we get or how many likes we get on a, like that stuff is fleeting. Uh, the, the challenge I think, especially for, for young people is how, how do we channel our passions and how do we channel our views into, into institutions and into, into community, which is tough, right? Cause as soon as, as soon as it's more than just you speaking, Things aren't going to be said exactly the way you want. Things aren't going to be done exactly yeah. the way you want. And so, but what you lose in in sort of um, in sort of that that control over expression, you gain in the fact that um, that you're representing more than just you. That that you're actually right. you're actually in solidarity with 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 folks with the with the general approach that that you have. And and when you're able to do that, then there's some real some real power in that. Um, so let's, I mean, let's really dig into public faith and, and Tyler, feel free to jump in, but I just want, I'm, I'm going to just pepper you with, with questions yeah. so that folks understand, can wrap their heads around it. And I think at the end of the day, they'll be encouraged to get involved too. When you say um, political engagement, what do you mean beyond just voting? Like just give us, you know, some action items. What does it mean to be politically engaged? Yeah, well, um, so uh, I, I I do with election day so close. I I, I do want to. I know you said aside aside from voting, but 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 voting is like the fundamental basic yes, yes. Uh, 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 mode of civic engagement. Uh, it, it's not uh, it's not just sort of like uh, this opportunity we have. Our entire system of government is is dependent on our participation in that way. And so, so vote, vote up and down the ballot. Uh, uh, we all don't have, right. Like we all don't have to be political science experts. You're not going to be able to, to, uh, research, uh, you know, uh, how, how the, the high school GPAs of, of every candidate that's on the, that's on the, uh, that's on the ballot, but, but do what you can with the responsibilities that you have. Um, and just, just make sure you vote. Um, in, in addition to that, um, you know, I think about it in a few categories. One, uh, there are individual actions that we can take. And so uh, the, the, the private uh, uh, conversations, um, the, um, the, the, the way that we um, incorporate, make sure that our, our daily lives uh, fit with our sort of political aspirations and that our political aspirations fit with our view of the gospel. Um, uh, and so, so just sort of like the, the way that we live our lives. And then two is sort of political actions that we could take as individuals or, you know, most effectively in communities. So like people under, underappreciate the impact that reaching out to their member of Congress or their state legislator or their local mayor has, Hmm. Uh, the, these elected officials don't hear from folks as much as we might think. And so, for instance, in, in Congress, uh, members of Congress have staff whose sole job is reading the mail that comes in and responding to it. Uh, and if 
if a member of Congress, Can I get one of those folks. Yeah, right. I just, I just need one. <laughs> <laughs> if a member of Congress gets fifteen letters on the same issue in a day, it's it's likely that 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 issue is going to end up directly in front of the member of Congress because they just want to make sure that they're being responsible to their their constituents. And so, uh, uh, joining with friends and and, and writing letters, writing op-eds to your letters to the editor of your newspaper, that's, that's, that's powerful. Um, and then I'd say sort of institutional engagement, and I, I mean that as we discussed in political parties, but also think about what it looks like to throw your weight behind, um, think about what it means to throw your weight behind advocacy organizations and social service organizations that, that match up with sort of your passions and, and your views. So that could be an organization like the Ann Campaign, which Public Faith uh, uh, has, has partnered with uh, and loves. Uh, it could be an organization like World Vision or World Relief. These are organizations that have paid government affairs advocacy folks who that is their job. So you don't have to feel you don't have to feel burdened like you got to do everything. Sometimes political participation means lending your voice and your legitimacy and your resources um, to, to those who are on the playing field, to those who are thinking about these issues every day. So if you're if you if you're doing a, a missions trip um, to 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 Haiti uh, in the aftermath of of, uh, of this storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might want to make sure that you have a voice in public policy conversations that's going to guide whether the U.S. is contributing aid to Haiti uh, to rebuild. If you're volunteering at your local pregnancy resource center and that's something that you're passionate about, um, that individual service is 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 great uh, and and helpful. But you're probably going to want to uh, make sure that. Uh, you don't have public policies that are working against the very work that you're um, that you're trying to do, and that you're lending your voice in in the political realm as well. Um, and so, th- there are a range of of activities that that folks can uh, be a part of. And the goal is not it, everyone's not not going to be a politician. Not that like we all have our own individual callings. But I think what's important is uh, th- there is a a general responsibility. Hmm. You know, we know in Jeremiah 29 that we're supposed to seek the welfare of the city in which we've been uh, uh, planted for. If it prospers, we too will prosper. And uh, what that means in this country, in the United States, is we live in a place that is, again, dependent on our civic participation. It expects it. Uh, It's part of the social contract. And so uh, living out Jeremiah 29 to me um, uh, uh, means not ceding those responsibilities to, to others. Wow. So you talk a little bit about the Ann campaign in your previous answer. And from the beginning, even you know, with your political story, justice has been important. Civil rights have been important. It's also been important to public faith. So talk a little bit about why you chose to support a, a group like the Ann campaign versus Black Lives Matter as an organization and and where where in, in what ways is the end campaign different from public faith and how are they intersectional and how are they a little bit distinct in their aims yeah well you, you know I, I, so uh, i mean the first the first reason is uh, the end campaign has incredible people involved i mean so <laughs> i was do. just with i was just with justin uh, j- just yesterday, he he's not like they're not doing good work like, uh, you know, for Christians as if that's like a lower standard. That they, they they are they are sophisticated uh, folks um, who who know politics, but are grounded in the gospel, and and that's that's what public faith tries to pursue. That's what I try to pursue in my own life. And so when I when I find an organization or a group of folks. Uh, that are living out an ethic of uh, we we care about our community, we care about the direction of the country, um, but we know that politics isn't the ultimate thing. We're not willing to to sacrifice faithfulness on the altar of of short term sort of political pragmatism. Then, then I'm like like 
Uh, count me in. <laughs> yeah, I'll, right. I'll I'll grab co- I'll grab coffee for you. I'll put cream in it. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that's like I. And so um, and so it, you know, for instance, uh, uh, Am Campaign had already put out uh, a platform on criminal justice reform, and so and it it was it was good. So at Public Faith, we were like, we don't need to to reinvent the wheel here. Why don't we lend our voice in support of the good work that our friends at the Ann campaign have already, have already done. Um, and, and you know, I think that there's this new sort of energy, this new sort of generation, this sort of post, um, this sort of post, uh, post religious, right. Post sort of, um, social justice, uh, slash, you know, uh, biblical fidelity dichotomy that is just not uh the next generation sees that if you're not committed to gospel truth uh and the justice uh of those around you public justice um then 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 you're missing out on something and so and campaign public faith i i I think russell moore and the ERLC, I mean, uh, there there's a new wave of, of leaders and organizations that um, s- sometimes their efforts are going to look different. Sometimes they serve different communities. But um, if, if we can all work together whenever it's possible, um, then I think that's going to be a hopeful thing for, for Christians um, to see that. And, and I think it's going to be a good thing for the country. I, m- I mean, one of the helpful things... Um, with secularization occurring in this country is that we're going to be real clear. Look, we're, we're not Christians because it's culturally comfortable. We're not Christians because we like the stories. We're Christians be, because we believe, we believe Jesus was real. He lived. He died. He's sitting on the throne. Scriptural truths aren't truths just for us that we tell each other in church on Sunday. Scriptural truths are truths for everybody. Mm. And the, uh, uh, Jesus's way is the best for everybody, and that's something that uh, I think um, can be heard in a different way now than when sort of we had this sort of loosey goosey kind of cultural assumption that everyone was Christians, even though you know our lives may not have may not have reflected that, and our culture may not have reflected that. Yeah. So, so would you say that public faith? aims to primarily collaborate with Christian organizations that are doing similar things, such as the end campaign versus uh, a different organization like Black Lives Matter? Or could you see yourself connecting with non-Christian organizations if the, the common grace aim is the same? We're operating from an explicitly Christian perspective. And so that's it's in our vision statement. That's in our about us. That's, that's who the members are. Um, and, and so no matter sort of who we partner with, that's not going anywhere. The, the idea of co-belligerence or, you know, if, if there are people and organizations who have, you know, shared discrete aims with us, you know, we're, we're going to work with anybody who, who uh, is heading in the same uh, direction as us. But uh, I, I would imagine that our work is going to be primarily with Christian organizations because we're already heading in the same direction, if that if that makes sense. Sure. And so the Black Lives Matter movement has has injected some important things into our into our public dialogue and then maybe some perspectives that, that aren't so helpful. But the role of Christians, especially in a society like ours that again is is secularizing, that is that does not hold Christian assumptions, is to our job is to affirm what is true and good and beautiful and to reject what is not. And so, uh, so anywhere that we find something that we could affirm, you know, we're going to affirm it. And then on the, on the other side of that coin, you, when there's something that needs to be rejected, you know, we're, we're, we're going to reject it. Well, let's get to um, what could probably be our last question and a whole other podcast episode. But <laughs> I'm really, <laughs> I'm really curious about your perspective on voting in this election cycle, right? We've got Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee and Donald mm. Trump as the Republican one. Uh, we've got uh, third, third party and Green Party candidates as well. Um, and a lot of people are saying, look, 
this both candidates are bad both major party candidates are bad i can't vote for either one so either i'm not going to vote or i'm going to vote third party and what's I, I mean one one thing i'm wrestling with is hasn't this always been the case now not to say that that donald trump in particular is the same kind of uh unacceptable as other candidates but you're never dealing with a perfect human being you're never dealing with candidates who completely represent your views. And so, I mean, to me, it's interesting that, that so many people who would have voted for one party or the other say, I can't vote for either. Um, I don't know. My opinion, my opinion is this. One candidate is clearly a categorically different kind of bad than the other candidate. Uh, I think that's one issue that, that I have personally. That's not the rep- yeah, representative yeah. of the organization or anyone else. Um, but then but then to say third party or not vote at all and as as if we've ever really had, you know, f- infallible options. I mean, just flesh that out a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And so I agree. I mean, your your insight's very key, which is, you know, this election is only putting in starker relief what has been the reality the whole time, which is the the fallibility of our political choices, the idea that we don't really know sort of which, even if we're confident, uh, even if we feel perfectly comfortable with, with a candidate, um, that, that candidate's inherently fallible, which only, you know, is exacerbated when we're uncomfortable with with any of the candidates, I, I was growing concerned with sort of the, the the exceeding crushing sort of moral weight that was being put on on voting, particularly in this election. And by that, I mean like, look, people need to be discerning with with their vote. Um, and, and you know, my my entire my job, like a lot of what I care about, is is asserting the importance of Christians being involved politically. But, like, make no mistake, like, your vote is not the most morally important decision you're going to make that day, that month. (laughs) Um, I put together a a document that folks can get at uh, at my website at michaelware.com where I, I just tried to sort of disarm the conversation a little bit uh, by proposing five questions that Christians should ask as they think about their vote in November. This isn't a voter guide and in, in, I'm not, uh, these aren't leading questions. These aren't sort of manipulative questions. They're, they're trying to get you and uh, small groups and, and communities and families around the dinner table to, to again, sort of disarm all the political manipulative weight that gets put on these conversations just ask hey like what am i what am i passionate about what what takes up my my life what what do i see as the needs of my neighbors being in this particular season um and then w- one of the questions is uh and I, and i only came to this after doing a couple dozen events over the last year talking about you know this this admittedly like very difficult choice like it's important to acknowledge there, there is a uniqueness to, to, to the two party uh, candidates this time around. That is, that is different. Yeah. They have the highest un- disapproval ratings of, of, uh, of the two major candidates combined that, that we've we've ever had. So there is something unique yeah. there. But, but the question I ask is, uh, look, if if you woke up on November 9th and found out that your vote uh, determined the election. That if you would have voted a different way, a different candidate would have won. Would you still feel that your vote served your neighbor well? Would you still uh, w- would you would you not regret the choice that you made? Um, and, and I think that's a key question for us to be thinking about in this season, where a, a vote isn't about sort of affirming our identity or sort of an emotive exercise the purpose of a vote is to is to vote for the candidate who you think is going to serve your community best um, in relation to the other candidates running um, and, and so 
uh, and so, so yeah, if, if folks are still wrestling with this election, I, I'd, I'd urge them to, to check out that document, to, to talk with their family and friends about it, and, and hopefully, like, uh, take away some of the anxiety and fran- franticness that, that folks are understandably feeling in, in, this, in this charged season. Yeah, that's really helpful advice, Michael. We'll, we'll, we'll include a link to your website and maybe that document in the show notes for this. Uh, but you've illuminated some some really tricky issues, and it's so I'm I'm so personally thankful to have um, Christians in the public sphere like yourself who can uh, speak from you know so, sort of an insider experiential standpoint about these very tricky issues. So we appreciate your wisdom, and thank you so much for being on the yeah, show. Hey, can, can I just say y'all have been an absolute blessing in this season, not just this political season. But this is in a, a very important time for the American church. And some of the decisions that we make over the next three to five years, uh, I'm convicted, are going to determine the trajectory of the American church um, for, for, the, for the coming decades. And I, I can't tell you how thankful I am of, of your witness, of your groundedness in the gospel, um, and the faithfulness that, that you've shown. And, and y'all have just been salt and light this entire season. And, and uh, I just want to let you know how grateful I am, how much I support your work, and uh, how, much I, how much I love you guys. It really, y- y'all have been a blessing. Wow. It's so very good. encouraging. Thank you so much. I'm gonna shut it down. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back to bed right now. Like the, the, the day can be done for me. I'm good. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, high honor. High honors. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, you guys, if you want to hear more of this, these great insights from Michael Ware, you can go to his website, michaelware.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Michael R. Ware, and you need to go ahead and pre-order. Um, I, I believe the book is available for pre-order, correct? Reclaiming Hope? It is. It is. It's it's available for pre-order. It will be out in January, but but you might as well grab your copy now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Shameless plug. Please do. <laughs> Please do Reclaiming Hope, which talks about his insights on lessons learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. We want to thank uh, Michael Ware for being with us today on this podcast. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore past the mic. That's our Twitter handle. You can also follow at Rand Network. Follow randnetwork.org for the latest and greatest in blogs that are coming out on a number of variety of issues, including this political election, justice, theology, etc. Um, And we also want you guys to download, rate, and review the podcast. Be sure to share that with your friends. You can download via the Satchel app, which is a great way to donate directly to the podcast on that application. And then as always, we can't end the show without talking about our Pass the Mic Facebook group, which is an exciting group of people, cross-denominational, cross-racial group of people who are pushing for justice in their local context. So you can join the Pass the Mic Facebook group today by going on facebook.com and searching for Pass the Mic, putting in your requests, and then we'll let you into the group. Well, thank you guys again for joining us on this episode of Pass the Mic, and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.